Hello and welcome. I am Austin Bridges, welcoming you to the LL Research Podcast in the now, episode number 57. Yes, 57, that's right. Uh, LL Research is a nonprofit organization dedicated to freely sharing spiritually oriented information and fostering community, and towards this end, uh, we have two websites the archive website, llresearch.org, and the community website, bringforth.org. During each episode, we respond to questions sent to LL Research from spiritual seekers like you. Our panel consists of Gary Bean, Jim McCarty, and myself, each of us a devoted seeker and student of the Law of One. Your questions allow us to explore the Law of One and related matters of metaphysical interest. We hope only to offer a resource that enhances your own seeking process. Please know that our replies are not final word on these subjects. We ask each who listens to exercise their discernment and be sensitive to their resonance in determining what is true for them. If you would like to submit a question for this show, please do so. Our humble podcast relies on your questions. You may either send an email to contact at llresearch.org or go to www.llresearch.org slash podcast for further instructions. Again, I am Austin, and we are embarking on a new episode of LL Research's podcast in the now. Jim and Gary, you guys here and ready to go? I'm ready, and uh, Chloe is too, if you hear any purring in the background. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I heard. Me three. All righty. Well, our first question today comes from uh, Mr. JP from Utah, a friend of ours and frequent questioner and listener of the show. And JP writes, I heard on Coast to Coast AM, a national late night radio talk show that deals with the paranormal about some new fascinating stories of children remembering past life information. It seems the veil is getting more and more thin. And these past life memories are getting more common and detailed. They are very hard to ignore. And at the same time, science is getting better and better and way deeper. And someday soon, one might ask, uh, what is the world going to do when the veil is broken and real science can prove without a doubt that life after death is real? What will the world be like? Well, what timing? Netflix is soon going to premiere a new movie starring Robert Redford as a scientist who discloses his real, undeniable proof that it is true. As you can imagine, all hell breaks out. And there goes Catalyst in the 75,000-year cycle for harvest. This could happen in our lifetimes for sure. Maybe you guys could speculate just for fun what this would mean for the average human and planet if science discovers the existence of reincarnation. Something to think about. Uh, is it scary? We are over halfway there right now. Gary, what do you have to say about that? I'd like to hear what JP has in mind, because it sounds like he's he's given this subject some thought <clears throat> and uh, allowed his mind to daydream into wondrous areas. So um, there are competing truths in the world, and the scientific institution seems to be the dominant arbiter of collective reality in the reigning global paradigm. That is to say, science offers the most per persuasive and convincing of the available voices. 
generally speaking. Um, so say then that the existence of the afterlife is scientifically validated and endorsed by the scientific community, and then the world at large accepts that finding. Um, it might be a paradigm revolution that would shake foundations comparable to the imagined iconic moment of the UFO landing on the White House lawn. Or perhaps the cultural cataclysm that an asteroid headed toward Earth might meet upon our civilization. Um, then again, a lot of people around the world already believe in reincarnation. Um, I did some internet browsing, surely a reliable way of gathering data, and came across people indicating that um, maybe up to a quarter of the world's population already subscribes to some system of reincarnation or transmigration of the soul, um, including Taoists, Sikhs, maybe some Aboriginal uh, understandings, an unknown number of New Age adherents, and approximately 1.5 billion Hindu and Buddhist. Um, but the Western world seems founded upon principles that limit the scope of the self's journey to one lifetime in the scientific view, or perhaps an eternal afterlife to follow in the religious view. So what impact would an understanding of reincarnation have? I think that simply accepting reincarnation would be the first and largest hurdle to overcome. I think no matter what kind of evidence might be procured, uh, humanity is nothing if not adept at burying the head in the sand. Uh, we don't want to see what we don't want to see, uh, especially if it conflicts with dearly held belief, especially if that belief is embedded in a sense of self and one's tribal affiliation. Yet, despite this propensity, worldview has somehow evolved over the centuries and more recently decades. So I don't know if... I, I don't know that reincarnation would offer clarity, per se. I, I think there would be a lot of confusion and turmoil in society as it attempted to reconcile uh, reincarnation with the historical worldview. Um, but if a consensus or a majority or a critical mass might come around to saying, uh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, um, there would be a redefining or refining of many, if not most, areas of human development and activity. I will speculate about three relationships. Uh, our understanding at LL Research is that most on this particular planet have been around the block a lot. It is statistically likely, then, that in past lives we have worked with the people in our present lives. So relationships, then, could take on a whole new lens that understands current dynamics in terms of energies that were set into motion long ago, uh, especially illuminating for those who can't understand why they have the relationship that they do with somebody, um, whether there is a complicated attachment or aversion, you know, why they hate this person or why they like this person. Um, healthcare and healing, for a second example. Imagine the impact in the realm of medicine if we understood that present difficulties may have origins in a past life or may even have been chosen on a pre-incarnative level. Imagine both the positive and the negative uh, outcomes that could result. On the positive side, one might be able to heal that which seems intractable, or even just gain the peace of understanding the reasons behind their suffering, and thus be able to use and learn from the carefully designed catalyst. On the negative side, one might be denied medical attention, or just even empathy, because their present condition is viewed as a result of past karma, or misdeed, or is just their responsibility because they quote-unquote chose their condition before being born. I mean, 
for great examples, see the dark side of reincarnation teaching in the Indian caste system. And as a final speculation or area to speculate about crime and punishment, um, imagine a defense being mounted for the accused that moves past the origins of their behavior in a troubled childhood and finds even deeper causes in past lives. Uh, imagine discovery that what we call a crime was, in a particular case at least, actually agreed upon between the two souls prior to incarnation. Um, there would be as many different in interpretations for what reincarnation is and how it works as there are people in the world. Um, don't quote me on this, but the Hindus, for instance, see reincarnation as a sort of prison sentence, I believe, uh, or perhaps some onerous obligation to endure until one has achieved freedom from the cycles of rebirth through enlightenment, whereas New Age or Western understanding of reincarnation tends to see it as an opportunity to further develop the soul through successive rounds of learning. Um, to conclude, uh, attempting to speculate about the impact that reincarnation would have upon our particular global society just really beggars the imagination. Um, it would ripple out in a million unpredictable ways, producing both wonderfully positive and devastatingly negative results. That's my speculation. I hope that's um, that's uh, giving you something to chew on, JP. Back to you, host. Thank you for that, Jim. What are your thoughts? Um, great job, Gary. Uh, oh, well, um, he asks, what would, what would it mean for the average human on the planet? Well, we'll take the average human first. I think that's mostly what Gary was talking about, too. And for the average human on the planet, I don't know if it would be very important at all because we live in an age where everything that we see on television and in the movies and the books we read is fantastic. It's just out of this world. And that's what really draws people's attention. Plus, I don't think science has as large a role to play in how people think and how they behave as we've been led to believe. Uh, I remember back when uh, we landed on the moon in 1969. Uh, there was a survey done of people right after that, and uh, a number, a large percentage did not believe it actually happened. They thought it was staged. It was a hoax. It happened somewhere in the Arizona desert. There's still lots of people who think that. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, And then in, in the modern day, I mean, there was just recently a march of scientists in Washington, D.C., uh, supporting science. And uh, the concept of global warming haven't already been proved by science, but our present powers that be and those that support our present powers that be don't seem to believe that. And it doesn't matter how much information that science puts forth to support that. And there's been all kinds of information. I mean, if you travel to the various poles and see how the ice is melting and, uh, well, you know, if you don't want to, the thing is, if you don't want to believe something, you're probably not going to. And most of us, most average human beings, I think, have developed their system of belief from an emotional basis of something that they want to believe or something that they were raised to believe, not because it's rational or provable or scientific. So I think for the average human, it's probably not going to have a whole lot of an effect. It'll just be one more uh, card in the deck of fantastic events that happen every day on my television or in the big screen. But for uh, people, uh, and then we'll take the other end, we'll take people like like us that are in the supposed New Age movement, people who have uh, been considering these concepts for a long time, it'll be basically a verification of what we've been believing. 
But I think the people that we moved the most would be those that are um, sort of undecided and uh, really open-minded and open-hearted and who are, are looking for something better in the world. They just really want there to be something to believe in, something that's give them more direction. And this might be a, a turning point for them. And uh, what percentage of people in the world are in that category? I really don't know. Um, but I think that they could be really impacted in a favorable way and could begin uh, their own spiritual journey on a conscious fashion. And, and you know, we're looking for that hundredth monkey effect. Uh, Charles Eisenstein speaks about how everything we do uh, as a person on the path of seeking unity and fellowship and um, brotherhood and sisterhood with all those around us affects everybody else. So maybe if we get a few more people, just a few more percentages of people that are in favor of uh, unity and of including people, of, of not excluding anybody for any reason, you'll love thy neighbor, as the sign said I saw in the paper day, and then underneath it said, no exclusions, no exceptions, you know, love your neighbor, wherever they're from. So, you know, for those folks, maybe it'll have a big impact. I'm hoping so. What do you think, Austin? Um, I really appreciate that answer, especially the beginning, because um, that's sort of the angle that I evaluated JP's question from, was it really got me asking um, what effect does science have, any scientific discovery have on our lives currently? And um, sure, there are plenty of people who sort of attach their identity to science and will basically th throw down any scientific evidence as sort of the ultimate truth that cannot be questioned. Um, but by and large, I think that if science discovers the reality of an afterlife or reincarnation, that it will be probably dismissed or ignored, even by a lot of people in the scientific community. Um, so that's sort of the question I asked myself is, what would this look like within the scientific community? if this was discovered because there are plenty of uh, scientific studies and experiments uh, that exist now that prove things not necessarily an afterlife but um, more what you would call paranormal there's plenty of scientific evidence but um, people in the scientific community explicitly claim that they uh, don't want to integrate these things in with their current scientific paradigm. I can't remember. I wish I could cite the specific study that I'm talking about, but I heard Ken Wilber talk about it, and it was a major scientific journal, and it basically asked if there was a scientific study that proved beyond the shadow of a doubt something paranormal existed, would you believe it? And a majority of scientists said no because it would go against their worldview that has been built up by science so far. And so essentially it, science has become, in a sense, sort of a self-perpetuating um, paradigm that uh, can't really grow. So it might take something beyond the realm of science to really bring this knowledge into the forefront of our uh, culture and society. But um, approaching it from several different angles, Gary touched on the fact that there are plenty of people who believe in reincarnation now. And uh, beyond that, many, many more people that believe in an afterlife. And scientific knowledge has no influence on their beliefs. These are matters of spirituality and faith for them. 
but they do truly believe. And I don't think that um, the fact that science hasn't proven it causes them to not believe any stronger. So how do these people act differently? I really don't think that anybody does act differently if they believe in an afterlife or not. Um, you can probably find a full range of incredibly pure, wonderful, positive people to uh, really sort of confused or mean or angry people who believe fully that heaven exists and that they are doing what is right to get there. Um, and uh, JP references this movie that uh, has Robert Redford coming out. Um, in case you're curious, it's called The Discovery. It's actually out on Netflix now. And I don't think this is spoiling anything. I looked it up and read a little bit about what it was about. I don't think it's spoiling anything to say that uh, a central theme of the movie is that because of this knowledge that uh, the afterlife might be real, suicide rates increase drastically because people feel like death is no longer a final end, but rather an opportunity to start over. Mm -hmm. Um that also, I don't think, is necessarily... It's interesting, I guess, for a story perspective, uh, and it sounds like a pretty cool movie, but the actual um, impact I don't think is very realistic because I doubt that suicide rates are higher among people who believe in an afterlife than people who don't. Um, and Gary brought up the uh, idea of persecution, or not persecution, sort of a lack of empathy because of the fact that we know that we'll be extending beyond this life. And uh, an instance from that movie is somebody saying that they relocated somebody when they actually killed them. They're just <laughs> relocating them from this life to another life. And so uh, that's another interesting theory of how we might uh, approach relationships with people differently is that we can't really harm them in a significant way because this life is uh, temporary and a minuscule amount of lifetime that we will live in the eternity of lifetimes. Um, so this is kind of a scattered reaction, but I didn't have a lot of organized thoughts to share. I do have uh, one final thing to share, which is that despite what I said about the scientific community, I did recently find, or actually somebody posted on Bring Forth, a division of the University of Virginia School of Medicine called the Division of Perceptual Studies. And what this place does at the School of Medicine is research exactly what JP is talking about, the existence of reincarnation and past lives, primarily through um, children who remember memories from past lives. And I'm going to read a little excerpt from uh, their website because I thought it was really fascinating that this existed at a typical university and that there were uh, scientists engaged in this as sort of their life, um, life purpose. Uh, it says, founded in 1967, Dr. Ian Stevenson, the Division of Perceptual Studies is the oldest and most productive university-based research group in the world devoted exclusively to the investigation of phenomena that challenge the current physicalist brain-mind orthodoxy, including investigation of phenomena directly suggestive of post-mortem survival of consciousness. Through its research, DOPS strives to challenge this entrenched mainstream view by rigorously evaluating empirical evidence suggesting that consciousness survives death and that mind and brain are distinct and separable. 
As we expand our leading edge research, we believe mainstream academia will become more accepting of survival sci and that science will enlarge to take on new challenges in studying the nature on consciousness, because that's supposed to be nature of consciousness, and its interaction with the physical world. Simply put, our goal is to expand the current paradigm because we believe that recognition of consciousness as something greater than a physically produced phenomenon is both more optimistic and more accurate than the prevailing materialist worldview. Um, I was very inspired to see this. Um, I have a rather cynical view of the university system and uh, science and the scientific community, um, but that gave me some hope, and hopefully uh, maybe the paradigm will expand uh, to go beyond the materialist scientific understanding, and uh, hopefully it doesn't necessarily have to be science. Maybe this division of perceptual studies can sort of help build a bridge between science and what we understand as spirituality to help um, make this information more accessible and clear and available to people. So uh, those are my thoughts. Anything else from you two? No, nothing from me. Uh, just one little anecdote from one of the fellows in our meditation group. His uh, great-granddaughter's 10 years old, and she was having a conversation with her with his wife, his her great-grandmother, and they were talking about, well, where do you think you were, honey, uh, before you were in this life? And she said, well, Mama, I was a tree. Mm-hmm. And uh, so she said, uh, you were a tree. Wow, that's, that sounds kind of fun. Uh, maybe I was uh, a gardener who was taking care of you. Mm-hmm. And the little girl said, no, Mama, you were a tree too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's... a. Children, especially young children, are what this uh, division at the University of Virginia studies in their remembrance of past life memories. They don't delve too much into uh, past life hypnotic regression. I actually think that they sort of explicitly avoid that because of the stigma it has in the scientific community. But um, children who simply remember past lives of their own volition uh, especially ones that remember very specific memories of who they were and uh, their relationships with other people and how they died. There's been some really uh, groundbreaking cases where a child knows something that they absolutely should not know, but they remember it in the context of them being alive and experiencing it. So it's a really cool area of study, I think. That's probably where this scientific proof might come from. Alrighty, uh, next question is um, meant primarily for Jim, uh, but it's pretty interesting, I think. It's sent in from Anthony via email, who writes, In a previous episode, Jim referred to it being a good practice to channel in the name of Jesus. He said that previously he would channel in the name of the Christ consciousness, but later changed that to Jesus because of some experience he had. Is Jesus not the Christ consciousness? Why would he feel he would need to make this distinction? What was the experience he had? Jim, take it away. Uh, well, first of all, we need to change the uh, channel to challenge. Uh, I don't channel in the name of any entity, right. <laughs> but I do challenge any entity who wants to speak through me in the name of Jesus Christ yeah, because uh, we need to be able to differentiate who we've got on the line uh, a lot of people that do channel think that they can tell who they've got on the line just by their vibrations, but that's not true. 
because there are negatively oriented entities that can mimic your positive contact and you can't tell it. I'm sorry, you're not that good. <laughs> you know, so we have to have some way of differentiating. So that's the way I differentiate. I used to uh, challenge the name of uh, the Christ consciousness because I really wasn't too much of a, a, a Jesus person or a Christian at all. I was raised in the Presbyterian church, regular type of Christianity, and it didn't take. Uh, you know, it was kind of like water off a duck's back for most of my life, all the way up until uh, August 31st of 2015, which was just about three or four months after Carla made her transition. Um, I had been uh, in the yard a couple, of, about a month earlier, wondering how I could get the mumbo-jumbo nonsense out of my mind. As I was working in the yard, there's just these phrases or sounds or music or something would be going through my mind. It was just bothering me. I thought there's got to be something better I can do with my mind. So I said, well, maybe there's a phrase or a mantra or something that I could just chant. And all of a sudden, into my mind came Alleluia. And I have a hunch Carla may have given this to me, I don't know, but uh, she was classically trained as a musician and singer. So I just began... Uh, doing Alleluia, Alleluia, over and over in the yard. So um, about 20 minutes later, I had tears coming down my eyes, and I really couldn't explain it. But I started to incorporate the Alleluia chant into any time I was not doing something I needed to use my mind for, something mindless like driving or uh, doing some work in the yard. I would just sing that uh, chorus. And I was doing it on the morning of the 31st of August in my morning meditation. And um, I was feeling particularly inspired, and I didn't know why. So I thought, well, let's ask the Creator to come into our heart to see if we can have an experience of, of unity with the Creator. And nothing happened. So I thought, well, let's ask Jesus to come into our heart. All of a sudden, my chest started beating, my heart started opening, my tears were flowing down my cheeks, and for the next 10 minutes, I was um, totally absorbed in the feeling of the love of Jesus Christ. And um, I told this to a friend of mine, uh, Morris, who has a couple of uh, siblings, one brother and one sister, who are both very fundamental Christians. He said, well, you know, uh, my brother and sister and most fundamental Christians would say you were born again. And I said, well, you know, that's what it feels like. It feels like I've been born again because I don't look at things as the way I used to. I mean, I love everybody. I love everything. I talk to everything <laughs> because it's the creator. And um, so from that point on, I decided that uh, it would make sense for me to uh, challenge any entity who wished to speak through me in a channeling session in the name of Jesus, who is the Christ. And uh, that's been the way I've done it since. And I got that from Carla. Uh, she did it for uh, her whole life. She was a Christian from the age of two on. And um, the difference between Jesus and Christ consciousness is that Jesus is the person who attained Christ consciousness. Christ consciousness is more like an officer, a, a level of consciousness. It's a, a way that uh, a lot of mystics throughout all time on the planet have been able to experience uh, the unity with all of the creation. So I... Um, before I had the experience with Jesus, I challenged in the name of Christ consciousness because that was, to me at the time, the most powerful way I could imagine uh, challenging. It was something I could believe in, something I strove for, something I had not accomplished, but something I valued very much. So that was why I used Christ consciousness then. 
But I use uh, Jesus now, uh, Jesus the Christ, because I have had an experience with Jesus, and it just changed my life. So, do you guys have any comments, questions? Yeah, I just appreciated listening to that story. Thanks, you. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, I, I have, like, a thought. I don't know if you'd really have any insight on it, though, that... Um, uh, I've always been curious, having been raised without spirituality in general, but then my spirituality being pretty much based upon the law of one, as that was what really got me into spirituality to begin with, the idea of sort of um, the uh, uh, a guru or a messiah or an individual who serves as an intermediary or as a connection to the creator. It's really common among uh, some sorts of mysticism and spirituality. As far as I understand in the East especially, you can have uh, a lot of devotion for a specific person or a guru and they will uh, after their death help you and help you to achieve different states of consciousness and different levels of uh, awareness. Um, I'm wondering if you have any insight onto the reason for there being, you know, uh, Jesus, which is has made a connection with you, versus the Creator make a, connect, a connection with you. What would there be specifically about the individual Jesus, if you have any insight at all into that? Um, well, I really can't tell you why it it worked when it did, and it didn't work for 68 years before that. Um, <laughs> I actually have a feeling, and this is just a feeling, and I, I could be wrong, that uh, each of us has a path of illumination that we've set out for ourselves before the incarnation. And we've chosen the means by which it will be accomplished, the entities or the concepts, uh, the information that will uh, spur us on to seek in such a way that we will eventually find what we're looking for, whether it's... Uh, uh, Confucianism or Lao Tzu or Buddhism or Islam or Christianity or whatever doesn't really matter. There have been illuminated mystics and so-called saviors of the world in all of these religions. Uh, Gautama the Buddha and Lao Tzu and, and Jesus all had disciples, but only a handful of any of the disciples during their lives were able to achieve what their masters had achieved and perhaps not even in the, the, the depths or the heights or the breadth that was achieved by the Master, but they had been able to achieve a, a union with the Creator and an experience of the Creator. And the, um, the source that I uh, look to most frequently for this kind of information is Joel Goldsmith in his book, The Art of Meditation. He speaks about these uh, great Masters throughout all the, the time and how they have not been able to reproduce their... Um, learning and their experience with very many of their followers. Uh, frequently, though, as you say, after they have passed from this incarnation, they are available to other followers throughout the, the centuries that follow them and have been able to be of assistance in some measure there. But it has not happened on a planetary scale. And even back in 1956, when Joel Goldsmith wrote The Art of Meditation, he was thinking at that time that if there were just uh, a few hundred souls on the planet who could demonstrate the uh, fully experienced presence of the one infinite creator 
that that might be enough to save the entire planet. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know if that's true, but I know that <laughs> you know we've come a long ways, and we're still hoping for something to help turn the tide and help the harvest on planet Earth to be more than the, the little bit it looks like right now it'll be. So that's all I've got to say about that. I'm sorry it wasn't ter- terribly illuminating. No, actually, I thought that was uh, pretty interesting and uh, relevant. Um, anything else from you, Gary? No. All righty. Well, I think we're um, at the end of our show here. Any final words for our listeners, Jim? Yeah, we really appreciate you listening. I mean, it makes us feel good to know that we might be able to help somebody just by sharing what our thoughts and feelings are. And and you help us by being out there and drawing these thoughts and feelings out from us. We thank you so much. We especially thank you for questions. And I've got some homework for you guys. When you're out in public, the next time, try smiling at everybody that you see and maybe even saying hi and maybe even going that extra step and surrounding them with love. And just see what happens. We love you guys. Have a great week. I was not informed there would be homework in this course. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You have been listening to LL Research's bi-weekly podcast, In the Now. If you have enjoyed this show, please visit our websites, llresearch.org and bringforth.org. Thank you so much for listening, for supporting this podcast with your questions. And a special thank you to JP and to Anthony for sending us questions featured in this episode. If you'd like to hear us ramble on about a particular topic, please read the instructions on our page at www.llresearch.org podcast. New episodes are published to the archive website every other Wednesday afternoon. Have a wonderful couple of weeks and we will talk with you then.